Years before, the name Alec Murdoch was splashed across every major media outlet. I was a local South Carolina journalist, and I had an instinct that something wasn't right in the Low Country. The powerful Murdoch dynasty dominated rural South Carolina for generations. Few dared to publicly utter a harsh word against them. From the newsroom to the courtroom to the kitchen table where we recorded the number one global hit, The Murdoch Murders Podcast, I invite you to learn more about my new book, Blood on Their Hands. Blood on Their Hands gives readers an exclusive inside look into the Murdoch saga and its sinister web of deceit, theft, and murder. I share the challenges of reporting on the many heartbreaking cases involved while pursuing justice for the victims and their families. Click the link in the description to pre-order today. Visit any retailers near you when it releases November 14th, 2023, or visit lunasharkmedia.com book to learn the best way you can stay pesky and stay in the sunlight. I don't know why the press fell for Dick and Jim's publicity stunt once again. But after reviewing everything we know about the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch, we believe the state is prepared to convince a jury that Alec Murdoch is guilty due to the overwhelming evidence. My name is Mandy Matney, and I have been investigating the Murdoch family for almost four years now. This is the Murdoch Murders Podcast, written by Liz Farrell and produced by my husband, David Moses. I want to start out today's podcast by talking about something very serious and very troublesome. After everything that we exposed in the last podcast about Judge Carmen Mullen and how she exerted her authority to attempt to coerce a police officer into arresting a troubled man for a crime he did not commit, the South Carolina Supreme Court has failed to take any action against Mullen. We are not the only ones covering this. The Island Packet and Post and Courier newspaper have also written multiple articles about Mullen's shocking actions. And still, we've heard nothing from those five South Carolina Supreme Court justices in charge of keeping the lawyers and the judges in our state in check. So that is Chief Justice Donald Beatty, Justice John Kitteridge, Justice Kay Hearn, Justice John Cannon-Few, and Justice George James Jr. I'm looking at the five of you, and I am wildly disappointed that the five of you apparently think that this behavior from a lawyer, let alone a judge, should apparently be tolerated and ignored in South Carolina the land of no consequences. Right now, Justices Beatty, Kitteridge, Hearn, Few, and James are telling every lawyer in this state that it is okay for them to abuse their power and bend the law to their favor, as long as they're as well-connected as Carmen Mullen. Because Liz did some digging, and turns out, Y'all absolutely can suspend a lawyer who you believe is threatening the integrity of the justice system before an investigation. 
In July, the South Carolina Supreme Court suspended the license of an assistant solicitor for texting with a juror in regard to a case that he wasn't even on. Before they conducted a full investigation, the South Carolina Supreme Court suspended the law license of this assistant solicitor because they said they had received sufficient evidence demonstrating that he poses a substantial threat of serious harm to the public. So, the South Carolina Supreme Court, through its actions, is saying an assistant solicitor texting with a juror in our eyes is more dangerous to the public than a judge with a problematic history who tried to convince a cop to arrest a man for a crime he did not commit. How is that possible? Do they think that we are stupid to just be okay with this and hope it blows over? Look, I have to say why we are really concerned about this. We live in Carmen Mullins' district. Our team has exposed her. A judge who appears to think that she can get someone arrested who has not committed a crime. I have thought about this a lot, about how someone with so much power is at the top of the justice system where I live and how scary that is. It really isn't all that far-fetched to worry about a knock at the door that could change everything. And also, I have to say this, the only reason why I haven't packed up everything and moved somewhere safer is because of the integrity of the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office. They have shown through their actions that they will not tolerate a judge exerting their power to illegally arrest someone. They have fortunately shown that the buck does stop with them. And the thing that we can't forget is that Mullen tried to throw those officers under the bus with her statement, which basically accused them of not accurately portraying what happened. She claimed that she was trying to help Ernie. And there are two really big things we again need you to realize here. Mullen's actions did not show that she wanted to help Ernie at all. They showed that she wanted to exert her power to help her friend Moose. And if she really wanted to help Ernie, she would have paid for him to go to a mental health facility, not to jail. Finally, the point we need you to remember is that Mullen was only comfortable with her actions and her statements because the system in place has made her that way. What the justices do about Judge Carmen Mullen right now will absolutely shape the direction of our system in South Carolina. So what we need from you, the listeners, to do here is to write and call our South Carolina Supreme Court justices about your concerns with Mullen. We will share contact information and more details in a call to action on our social media pages later this week. It is time that we demand our elected officials in South Carolina to fix this. Because as Martin Luther King Jr. said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's been nearly two weeks since the most recent hearing in the lead-up to Alec Murdoch's January 23rd murder trial, which is now just 83 days away. 
Up until the other day, we were still unpacking everything that happened in that courtroom. First, we have to tell you something funny that we didn't mention before. A woman apparently fell asleep in the courtroom while Jim Griffin was giving his arguments. We have no idea who it was or why, but Judge Newman stopped Jim so that the sleeper could be escorted out of the room. And guess what? A woman falling asleep on Jim was, in addition to being the least surprising event, also not the most hilarious thing to occur in those two hours. The most hilarious thing was when Dick Harpootlian and Creighton Waters each did what we can only describe as vaudevillian acts for the judge. Here, Dick pretends to be begging Creighton for discovery, like he's Oliver Twist asking for more porridge. And so this forthwith order would allow us to not say, oh, please, please, Mr. Waters, would you give this to us? Please go look. Uh, and then months go by and we don't get anything. Your Honor, this is, this is about due process. This is about equal protection. This is about fairness. We would like the ability to serve subpoenas without going to him first. Um, we don't have any problem coming to you. And here, Creighton pretends to be Dick telling lies about geofencing warrants. And just a few minutes ago, Mr. Arbutin was like, the search warrants, they're all sealed. We can't see them. Well, that's not true. They've all been unsealed. They can see them all. He's like, we don't have the returns. We can't get that data. They have all the returns except for this one particular one that we don't have yet. As Mr. Griffin just recognized, I don't work for Google and I certainly don't own Google and neither does he. If these guys show up to the murder trial with tap shoes on, do not be surprised. So last week on Cup of Justice, we talked a little about the hearing with Eric Bland, mainly about why Dick and Jim wanted this hearing in the first place. Eric told us that the hearing was a way for Dick and Jim to plant seeds of doubt with the judge and the public, which, yes, they definitely did try to do that. But it was also a way for Dick and Jim to get a sneak peek at the state's strategy in proving that Alec killed Maggie and Paul, meaning they likely didn't think the judge would grant them their motions. They filed the motions to once again make the state look like it was withholding evidence, but also to throw extreme doubt on the quality and significance of the state's evidence. One of the main focuses of the hearing, though, might actually have been for a real motion Dick and Jim wanted the judge to sign. They were asking for a forthwit order that would grant them broad subpoena power, and according to Creighton Waters, even more subpoena power than the state grand jury has, to, quote, investigate the real killers themselves, which we have to point out. Didn't they already do that? Remember, Dick from the Today Show in September 2021. So, Dick, he didn't murder them. Does he perhaps know who did and why? I don't think he does. I don't think he does. But but Jim Griffin and I are working on and investigating uh, an individual or individuals we believe may, may have uh, have some culpability or had did, done it. And we're in the process of doing that. We're not SWED. We're not law enforcement. We don't have their tools. But we think... Uh, we'll know this week whether whether the one suspect we're looking at bears for, further scrutiny, and we'll make that information available to law enforcement. Guess they wanted to take another stab at finding the real killer. And I have to point out just how little Dick and Jim did before September 2021, when they offered up this info on the Today Show that they were starting an investigation into the murders of Maggie and Paul. 
Don't forget, just a couple of weeks after this disastrous interview, Team Murdoch willingly allowed the reward they offered for information leading to Maggie and Paul's killer to expire. And let's be honest, the likeliness of that reward money coming from stolen client funds was probably high. But still, I have to point out, Team Murdoch has managed to fund hundreds of thousands of dollars for Alex's defense, and they couldn't swing to keep the $100,000 reward money afloat. And then, Dick and Jim could have held a press conference, capturing international attention at any point between last September and July, just saying, here is what we know about the investigation and we are begging anyone with any information to come forward and help find Maggie and Paul's killer. But they didn't do that. And actually, last October, when a reporter asked Dick about how his investigation was going, he said, I'm not commenting on that. What else? And got all snippy. I am pointing this out because it's important. We cannot allow for Dick and Jim to pretend like they've been on this mission to find the real killers this entire time. They are only acting like they care now because they feel like it'll help Alec. Which reminds me, in a statement to media in October, Alec's PR team included a somewhat ominous phrase. It said, Alec continues to hope that everyone responsible for Maggie and Paul's death will eventually be brought to justice. It's the word everyone that really stuck out to us here. How many people are they planning on pinning this on? And why did they not just say killers instead of everyone responsible? And what evidence do they know of, aside from the whole two-gun thing, which can be easily explained, that's leading them to thinking that there are multiple killers and accomplices? In speaking of two guns and the everyone responsible comment, as a quick reminder, Maggie was shot with a 300 blackout rifle that was reportedly Paul's gun. There is actually a video of Paul that I've seen of him when he was younger, holding what appears to be this gun. According to our sources, investigators were able to identify the gun as one owned by the family by comparing the shell casings from the murder weapon to old rusted shell casings found elsewhere on the Moselle property. Paul was killed with a semi-automatic shotgun, according to our sources and it was presumably a Beretta or a Benelli, but we're not positive about that. As far as we know, investigators still have not found the weapons. And because Moselle is a hunting property where guns were readily available for those that knew the land, two guns really does not mean two shooters. However, I personally have a hard time believing that Alec Murdoch could make two guns disappear within such a short period of time, all the while trying to establish an alibi. But I do have to ask if we will ever find out if there were actually accomplices. And there is a theory floating around among sources close to the investigation that honestly seems so absurd and I find it really hard to believe because it is straight out of a thriller movie. But I'm saying this only because 
everything that turns out to be true in this story also seems like it's straight out of a Hollywood movie script. And even though it sounds crazy, I do hope investigators have looked into it. But this unconfirmed rumor is that the guns were buried with Ellick's father, who died of cancer three days after the double homicide. Now that, which is just a rumor, would be a twist to end all twists. And we'll be right back. Years before, the name Alec Murdoch was splashed across every major media outlet. I was a local South Carolina journalist, and I had an instinct that something wasn't right in the Low Country. The powerful Murdoch dynasty dominated rural South Carolina for generations. Few dared to publicly utter a harsh word against them. From the newsroom to the courtroom to the kitchen table where we recorded the number one global hit, The Murdoch Murders Podcast, I invite you to learn more about my new book, Blood on Their Hands, a propulsive true crime saga, an empathetic work of investigative journalism, and an excoriation of the good old boy systems that enabled a network of criminals. Click the link in the description to pre-order today. Visit any retailers near you when it releases November 14th, 2023, or visit lunasharkmedia.com book to learn the best way you can stay pesky and stay in the sunlight. Back to the October 20th hearing. Dick and Jim worked really hard on hammering the judge with their alleged need for the subpoena power so that they can collect evidence they say the state doesn't have. The state, for its part, was like, look, if you need something, just tell us what you need and we'll get it. But Dick didn't like the idea of having to go through Creighton, not one bit. Why do we have to tell them why we need something? I mean, this is, this is not... They're the ones that incited this case three months ago. They're the ones that said, we're ready for trial. They're the ones that decided they had enough evidence to convict, convict Mr. Murdoch beyond a reasonable doubt. We didn't do that. They could have waited a year. They already waited one. I don't know what the hurry was. But now they want to say, whoa, 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 whoa. We'll get it to you when we can get it to you, number one. Number two, we want to know everything you want that we don't have. They're not entitled to that. So if you just set a hearing, we'll subpoena the people that give it to us without objecting. We'll be, we'll be fine. Can you believe this guy? The reason it took 13 months to arrest Alec was likely because of Dick and Jim. The reason they're having a speedy trial is because of Dick and Jim. But Dick seems to think nothing of rewriting history to fit his bluster. Personally, we don't believe that Dick and Jim seemed all that successful in their efforts. They came off like two rumpled old grumps meeting up for their morning coffees at the local McDonald's so they can complain about how much they hate computers and are sick of people being on their cell phones all the time. Also, we're not sure that Creighton actually gave them all that much insight into his strategy, honestly. He did, however, get to show us that he's not about to get steamrolled by these two men. Not again, anyway. There were two moments in particular that gave us hope that we will see a strong prosecutor in the courtroom come January. Here, Creighton lets the judge know that Dick and Jim are playing games. The discovery they're asking for, the biggest alleged reason for the hearing, 
were items they had just asked for a day or two before filing the motion. During the hearing, Jim conceded that Creighton had, in fact, been cooperative thus far in getting them what they needed after they asked for it. As Creighton was talking, Dick stood up to do his usual interjection, but Creighton stopped him. This discovery is massive, and we have been working as diligently as ever. Many of the things that they're talking about here today, they just asked for, okay? And we are immediately responding. Mr. Griffin conceded over and over again, yep, I have my list. I called up Creighton. I said, what about this, 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 and this? And I said, yes, 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 and yes. Didn't say no to a thing. So I don't know that we need to. I'm, I'm, I like to be able to speak without being interrupted. Here, Creighton calls Dick out for his end-of-hearing drama when Dick accused the state of forcing Ellick to attend his own hearings and, quote, trussing him up like an animal to get there. Your Honor, Mr. Murdoch is not trussed up like an animal. He's transported by some of the most professional sled agents I've had the opportunity to work with. Uh, Mr. Mr. Griffin and Mr. Uh, Harpootlian emailed, as you're well aware, yesterday and said they wanted to waive his appearance. Of course, I objected to that. I said this matter is too important. We need a colloquy on the record. If Mr. Murdoch doesn't want to attend the hearings for his own case where he's accused of the murder of his wife and son, if he doesn't want to I object to this. That's what we're here to talk about. This is not. I'd like to comment on your argument, Mr. Thank you. If he does not want to attend his own hearings, in the murder case against him for the murder of his wife and son, okay, that's fine. I, I remember an argument before your honor not too long ago where we were talking about the protective order and they were saying, he's a lawyer. He needs to be able to review all this material. He's got to look at all of this stuff. And I said, well, he was a lawyer. So I want to point out, it seems like Creighton really started to come alive in the courtroom. He was quoting himself from previous hearings, and we are here for that. One of our favorite Big Creighton energy moments, though, came when he told the courtroom the utter truth about Dick and Jim's ploy to try to introduce Cousin Eddie as the alleged real killer of Maggie and Paul, which, by the way, is one of the most reckless and disgusting things we've seen in this very reckless and disgusting case. In their motion to compel, Dick and Jim asked the state to provide more information about the May 5th polygraph administered to Eddie Smith, in which Eddie was asked if he had anything to do with the death of Maggie and Paul, if he was at Moselle that night, or if he knew what happened to Maggie and Paul. Eddie failed the polygraph, but as you guys surely know, polygraphs are generally inadmissible in court, and failing one is not a telltale sign that you are guilty. It's a sign that you are perhaps maybe hiding something. Like if SLED came and got me and put me through a polygraph right now because they wanted to suss out whether or not I committed a Murdoch-related crime, my immediate thought would be, it's finally happening. The Murdochs are pinning something on me and I am absolutely powerless against this system that was built to benefit them and their friends. And I promise you I would be sweating it and probably failing my polygraph even though I have not done anything wrong. Anyway, Dick and Jim's motion came complete with a picture of Eddie sitting for a polygraph 
in an odd close-up of the polygrapher's laptop with a blip in one of those cartoon speech bubbles that Dick and Jim superimposed on top of it. It looked like it was suggested from Clippy in Microsoft Word, which said, This spike shows Smith's deceptive response when he denies murdering Maggie and Paul. Whoa. After this motion was filed, the media took Dick and Jim's word for it, and suddenly they were introducing the idea that the real killer might be Eddie. It's such a transgressive and defamatory act that we barely have the words to describe our opinion on for what they did in the name of defending Alec Murdoch. And now we get it. They are defense attorneys. Any defense attorney is going to be like, wait, y'all asked another guy about this on a polygraph just months before charging my guy and the investigation took you 13 months? We don't really have an explanation for why Sled decided to ask Eddie these questions on a polygraph at all, never mind at that time, because I'm going to tell you something that's not going to be fun to hear right now. But investigators are usually pretty careful about creating extraneous evidence that is potentially exculpatory. To do this after April, when they knew about the high-velocity impact spatter and when they knew about Paul's phone that had video showing that Alec lied to them about his alibi, that's very interesting to say the least. Is this because they found something strange about Eddie's phone usage the night of the murders, perhaps? Dick and Jim accused Sled of sporadically investigating Smith's role in the murders. Then, they mention his phone records, including this line, quote, the warrant affidavit state that Smith stated he deleted his call logs and text messages several times during that day. And then, in going after Eddie Smith, Dick and Jim included a story in their motion that Eddie told an investigator about how and why he thinks Paul and Maggie were murdered. Here is David with that banana story from the defense's motion. I heard that Maggie had a thing going on with the groundskeeper, which I never met him, I don't know his name. And Paul went down into one of the barns and caught him and got upset. And he went and got his rifle and he was hollering and screaming. His mama was running and she fell down and she got up. He shot her in the ass and the bullet come out the top of her head. And then he turned to the groundskeeper guy. But the groundskeeper already went to his truck and got a shotgun. Wow. So I heard this groundskeeper theory floating around Hampton in the summer of 2021. But my sources immediately shut it down and said that there was nothing there. And also, I have to point out just how far Alec Murdoch and his team will go to defend him. Repeating a baseless rumor in writing that basically slut shames Maggie and accuses a murder victim of having an affair. Oh, and remember all of those times when Alex's PR team denied allegations that there was any marital problems between Maggie and Alec Murdoch? So oopsies, Dick and Jim. It's going to be tough claiming this absurd theory that Maggie was having an affair while also saying that there were no marital problems. Here's Creighton's reaction to Dick and Jim's gross stunt about Eddie Smith. This motion was more about trying to prejudice the public 
about this polygraph with uh, Curtis Eddie Smith, which as I explained in my response, they totally mistake what that means and what a polygraph is. It's very telling, Your Honor, that they wish to make this case about Eddie Smith. They miss, they, their, their defense is focusing on trying to make a big deal out of a polygraph, which as Your Honor knows is generally inadmitted in South Carolina courts. I'm not aware of it ever happening. Uh, and of course, they're also acting like this polygraph means something that it doesn't. That's not how polygraphs work. It's not like it is in the movies where somebody asks a question and the person answers and a little red buzzer goes off. That's not how they work. And because of the questionable reliability of polygraphs and the subjective aspect of them, they have never been admitted in South Carolina courts. They are an investigative tool. Uh, so what this motion really was about in two or three pages of that was to really detail that polygraph for its effect on the outside world and not for any legal reason. The second thing that they did, and this is very telling as well, that they're so desperate to make this case about Curtis Eddie Smith, is they recount some scuttlebutt story that Eddie heard that, that they know has no basis. Creighton also addressed Dick and Jim's insinuation that Eddie had a non-prosecution agreement with the state in exchange for testifying against Ellick at his murder trial. Uh, there is a proffer with uh, Mr. Smith, which has been provided to them for months. And again, I mean, I know Your Honor knows what a proffer is, but a proffer is not a cooperation agreement. It is not a plea agreement. Our proffer even says that in bold language. This is not a cooperation agreement. It's only an interview agreement. And it does have a polygraph requirement. There's also a breach letter. Okay. And so there's no weak, weak, nod, nod. There's no non prosecution agreement with Mr. Smith. As much as they want to make this case about Curtis Andrew Smith and talk about a polygraph and talk about some scuttlebutt story that, that is really offensive, uh, this case is not about Curtis Eddie Smith. Okay. To use a term of art, uh, Curtis Eddie Smith is, is, uh, is not the center of this particular case. This case is not about Curtis Eddie Smith. There's no uh, agreement with him. There's no non-prosecution agreement with him. We declared him in breach of the proffer, and he's currently indicted for 19 felonies uh, in, uh, in this particular investigation, and he's currently in jail based on the state's motion to revoke that was heard by Your Honor. So there's nothing that uh, is out there that needs to be disclosed, and if anyone committed any crime related to this investigation, they'll be charged. So here... Dick doubles down on the defamation while also telling the world that he's not actually doing the thing we can see him all doing. Your Honor, just in, in, in concluding our, our motion, I, would, and I just can't help but point out that Mr. Waters knows that Mr. Smith visited the murder scene on numerous occasions before the murders to commit illegal acts by leaving drugs there. So we know he knew how to get there surreptitiously. We know he failed to polygraph. We know his DNA as of today has not been tested under Maggie's fingernails or on the defendant's on the deceased uh, uh, clothing. I'm not saying he did it. I'm just saying certainly sounds like he could have done it. And we have a duty under our obligation or client to pursue that until we come to some conclusion. I understand it's inconsistent with the conclusion the state's come to, that doesn't make it not true. Speaking of the DNA under Maggie's fingernails, let's talk about the evidence we learned about in that hearing because ultimately, the biggest thing to come out of this hearing was that we all got a glimpse of what the state has and what seems to have Dick and Jim the most worried. Let's start at the beginning. 
Dick and Jim have repeatedly called this case circumstantial, which, as Creighton pointed out in the hearing, it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, most cases are based on a totality of evidence. Most murder cases do not have a witness or a confession, which Dick says this case is lacking. So this is important. Alec Murdoch's guilt or innocence will be determined after a jury considers this mountain of evidence the state says they have against him. And Dick and Jim, of course, downplayed the evidence at the hearing, saying repeatedly that it didn't add up to much. So last spring, we told y'all about the high-velocity impact spatter, which was apparently found on Alec's shirt, according to our sources. From what our sources told us, this spatter contained brain matter, and we were told that forensically, it could have only come from one thing, which would be Alec standing over Maggie's body as she was shot in the head. At that time, we couldn't go into detail about what the spatter contained, which is why we were very careful about saying impact spatter and not blood spatter. Since that revelation, Dick and Jim have both referred to blood spatter multiple times. We've told you before that we believe this is on purpose because blood stain analysis is apparently easier to dispute on the stand. So while, according to sources, Alec also had blood stains and blood spatter on his clothing, it's specifically the high-velocity impact spatter that would be the most damning. Of course, Dick and Jim didn't bring this up at all in the hearing, nor did Creighton, but we still believe that this may be one of the strongest pieces of physical evidence, especially when you consider this other critical piece of information, that Alec told investigators he didn't go down to the kennel that night, and that he wasn't anywhere near Moselle when they were killed. It wasn't until they cracked Paul's phone that they were able to show that this was a lie. At the hearing, we got an even better picture of how important Paul's phone is going to be to the case and how important Maggie's phone might be. So first, back to the unidentified DNA under Maggie's nails. According to Creighton, they're working with StarMix to extract and analyze that DNA. Again, if I'm the defense, I'm going to want to know who got that close to Maggie before her murder, but from what our sources have told us, Maggie did stop at a nail salon on her way to Moselle that night. So we're honestly not expecting there to be any big revelation there. Now the phones again. So there are several big reveals that happened here. The first is the timeline of Maggie's and Paul's deaths. One of the motions on the table October 20th was to strike the state's motion for an alibi. The state asked Dick and Jim to tell them if Alec planned to use an alibi defense, meaning, is he planning to say he wasn't there at the time of their murders? The state also asked if Alec was planning on using an insanity or necessity defense. Dick and Jim specifically addressed the alibi part of this, saying that the state had yet to tell them when Maggie and Paul were murdered. Here was Creighton's response to that. The indictments themselves specify that Alec Murdoch killed his wife and son on June 7th, 2021 uh, in Colleton County. It's an extremely well-known, maybe one of the most well-known facts in the state that that occurred at the property in Moselle. I've had conversations with Mr. Griffin in which I note that there is a video uh, that shows Alec present at the scene despite his denials 
with Maggie and Paul at 8.44 p.m., not long before their phones ceased any meaningful activity. And it's about 9.06 p.m. when his car fires up and he drives uh, over to Almeda. So we've made that clear to the defense and they, of course, know the 911 call turn occurred at 10.06 p.m. They know this. This is a manufactured issue to try to act like that they don't have this information when in fact they do. Um, Your Honor, this is, of course, this investigation is unlike anything anyone has ever seen because not only does it have at its core the most important case, and that is the murder case against Alec Murdoch for murdering his wife and son, but also it has an amazingly complicated white collar case where his use of his law license was allegedly exposed in a manner that people have never seen. Like we said, Creighton was not playing around. But this is the first time the public is hearing about the timeline as it relates to the usage on Maggie and Paul's phones. Basically, investigators looked at the way Maggie and Paul used their phones and saw that activity stopped around 9 p.m., which is also the time of death that the coroner had estimated that Maggie and Paul had been killed. And this is also the first time that we have gotten an official confirmation from the state about the video on Paul's phone that put Ellick on the scene when he said that he was not there. We now know that that video was taken at 8.44 p.m. And remember, Ellick didn't call 911 until 10.07 p.m. The time of death is clearly going to be a big sticking point for Dick and Jim. Here's Dick. There's no eyewitness. There's no confession. There's no nothing but circumstantial evidence. Your Honor, you and I as former prosecutors understand those are tough. Those are tough for a prosecutor. And so we want to make sure that we can, as they, the old charges to be, each circumstance is like a link in a chain, one of them breaks, that we don't charge that anymore. But it's still an approach. And so we need to see each link like Tell us when you think they were killed. Are they relying on the coroner's um, estimate of 9 o'clock? They've never said that because that's what's on the death certificate. 9 o'clock is at the time of death. Or is it, you know, 10 o'clock? They just can't. I mean, they've got to be more specific and they need to comply with Rule 5. Again, I want to make it clear. I'm not accusing the state of unethical, illegal conduct. Now, there is a small window of time between 8.44 p.m. when Ellick is on camera at the place that he said that he wasn't and 9.06 p.m. when Ellick Murdoch's phone apparently has him leaving the place where he says he wasn't. Dick and Jim are going to ignore the where he says he wasn't parts and explore and exploit every minute of that time, obviously. Because if they can nudge Ellick off that property, even one inch at the time, the state says Maggie and Paul were murdered, to their minds, they might be able to throw doubt on the case. In the meantime, they're still repeating the story that Ellick, Maggie, and Paul were convivial at 8.44 p.m., having good old family fun by the kennels. We know that the phones are critical because of how much time Dick and Jim spent trying to cast aspersions on the data. Here is Jim. As we've said, this case was indicted in, in July, and they're still working on reports for what they just re represented to the court is, it informs the time of death, because it's about when those phones stop moving around. 
That's all we've gotten is Mr. Waters' representation about that. We've not seen any scientific data to support what he said a couple times um, in court, now on the record. And, and we've got to have it. We've got to have it now. Creighton responds by saying, look, we talked about the phone data the day before you clowns filed these motions. Which, by the way, Dick and Jim distributed to the media before giving the state their courtesy copy. Creighton tells the judge that Dick and Jim have the same data that the state does, and Dick and Jim can have their three cell phone experts do the same thing that SLED is doing, which is to analyze cell towers. There is, however, a report that the FBI is working on, and when the final report is done, Dick and Jim will get it. And yes, we said three cell phone experts. I know we've mentioned a few times now how much experts cost, especially on the shortened timeline, but we're hearing that they're costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on experts by a man who got rich off of allegedly stealing millions from clients. Wrap your heads around that. Here's Jim. And we talked about a timeline. Now, now what, what, what we've been informed that they have told, um, agents have told witnesses who have been interviewed in the field, is that so-and-so's phone stopped moving at such, such and such time. I mean, you know, to our knowledge, we, we don't know how they can make that determination. And that's what we've got to see. Are they relying on something that that is uh, that is not would not pass Daubert standards. I mean, we've got to have that in order to come to your honor and say, Judge, that's junk science. I've been betting this issue since I heard this was a big issue. And I haven't talked to any expert who says, oh yeah, you can, that phone records a time every time it moves, or that phone records a time when it does this out or the other. I mean, I haven't found that person. Now, if they've got someone that's led who who's the guru of it, I mean, we need to know, and we need to know whether that's reliable, whether it's tested, whether it's scientific. And here's Creighton again. Your Honor, um, I think he's conflating two issues. It is true that phones will record uh, some, and again, I'm not the expert here, but they they can record some sort of aspect changes and things like that. What I've said to Mr. Griffin is not that we are basing the entirety of the case on something like that because he's right uh, that data can be helpful but it is not dispositive what we are basing it on is that despite what mr alan murdoch told anybody who would listen that he never went to those kennels the phone showed that he was there with the two victims shortly before we see meaningful activity on their phone consistent with how they use it and mr griffin is right when he says oh that, uh, that video, oh, there's, you know, there's no arguing or anything like that going on. He's right. He's right. Which might make it pretty cold. You caught that, right? It was a Creighton burn. He pointed out that, sure, Alec, Maggie, and Paul weren't arguing on camera. And that makes these murders so much more cold-hearted. So, again, Mr. Griffin, I think, is conflating the difference between those aspect changes of those telemetry and what I believe the evidence will show, and again, this will be for a jury to determine, that at, around that period of time, both Paul's phone and Maggie's phone stopped showing the usage, the texting, the calling, the movement that their phones typically show. And that's right around the time that they were shot and murdered. And here's Jim again. 
that's what I keep hearing from him, but we haven't seen anything, Your Honor. And and we what we do know from the records is that Paul's phone was dead. The battery was dead when sled agents got to him. That's, that's why we need this. We've got to get this. Right. Um, they, both, both phones were dead. Miss um, Murdoch's phone was not dead. Miss Murdoch's phone was found uh, a quarter mile down, down the road. Okay, so Paul's phone was dead by the time investigators got there. And clearly, Dick and Jim are going to use that to their advantage by positing that maybe the lack of activity on the phone while Alec was on the premises was due to Paul being bad at keeping his phone charged and not because his father killed him. The really interesting part to us was the mention of Maggie's phone, which was found a quarter mile down the road from Moselle with the help of Ellick's little brother, John Marvin. Now you'll remember a big problem that we've had with this particular find. Long story short, investigators from the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office, meaning Alex and Randolph's co-workers, were the ones to help John Marvin retrieve that phone. At the time of the murder investigations, we kept hearing that that was a huge and obvious conflict of interest. Solicitor Duffy Stone's presence on the scene was disturbing. Why? Because A, Duffy had to have seen a recusal in his future, and B, Duffy and his goon squad aren't really on-the-scene murder investigators. Typically, from what we heard, they investigate cases before they go to trial and maybe consult with the investigators on probable cause before an arrest. And C, Duffy's office has a six-year backlog with hundreds of victims waiting for justice. It was absurd to see him dedicate so many people from his allegedly very busy office to a murder investigation that he was inevitably going to have to recuse himself from. And even though Sled Chief Mark Keel came out in support of Duffy's little goon squad after we pointed out the very obvious problems with them handling Maggie's phone, we never actually believed that that was anything other than Keel folding to political pressure. We now know how this stuff works. That said, here we are, and guess what? We are unsurprised. And we wouldn't be surprised to see Dick and Jim try to use this to their advantage. Defense attorneys love chaos. And we'll be right back. In their motion to compel, Dick and Jim bring up the 14th Circuit's goon squad twice. They say they haven't been given photos of Maggie's phone as it was found on the side of the road by Dylan Hightower, whom they mistakenly say worked for Colleton County Sheriff's Office, but who actually worked for Duffy. Dick and Jim also say they haven't been provided with case notes or other investigative material from the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office, which... Good luck with that, because sources have told us that a Beaver County case almost ended in mistrial in 2020 because the defense had found out on the stand about an interview Duffy's office had conducted with a witness, but that the goon squad had not documented. Sources with knowledge of that situation said they found that Duffy's office was not routinely documenting their, quote, investigations in the way law enforcement agencies were expected to document them. Anyway, 
That Dick and Jim included this in their laundry list of alleged missing discovery doesn't necessarily mean that we'll see the goon squad's actions rear their ugly head in the courtroom. But this is what the Murdochs have traditionally been good at, creating scenarios that muddy the water in investigations connected to them and their friends. So back to the phones. We think they're going to be really important in all of this. And again, the tide started to change for the Murdochs in 2019 when they could not escape the technological accountability of cell phones and social media. Speaking of phones, another curious thing happened during the hearing. Dick and Jim say the state hasn't told them which jailhouse calls they plan to use at trial. This is where we can totally believe that they were fishing for Creighton's strategy, or maybe even to find out what Creighton might have heard on those calls, because here's how this went. Jim essentially said, the state is waiting too long to tell us what calls they want to use at trial, so we want to know what they uh, plan to use. And here's Creighton telling them, no, Jim, we weren't listening to the calls that appear to be running through your office now, but we might. I'm not aware at this time of any uh, jail calls we plan to use in our case in chief. However, uh, we will provide them with the jail calls that we reviewed. We were exceptionally restrictive in those. There are many instances, I believe, in which, uh, you know, we were uh, extraordinarily careful in not reviewing uh, particular calls uh, to avoid any possible privilege issue, even though I believe that there wouldn't be. Uh, since uh, all that uh, um, hoopla happened with the uh, Richland County's release of those calls, uh, there haven't really been any except uh, you know, long calls going through uh, to, uh, to Mr. Griffin's office. It may come a time uh, that uh, there might need to be a privilege review of some of those calls, but uh, I'm happy to provide the ones that we downloaded. That is a subset of all the ones that are on there because, again, there were many uh, calls that we were in an abundance of caution not reviewing. So I don't even want to touch those, but I'm happy to, to uh, provide the ones that we did. At this time, again, though, I, I don't see us using any of those in our case in chief. Personally, we think Creighton said it even better in his filed response to Dick and Jim. Here is David reading Creighton's motion. Of course, defendant should know what he said. And, of course, there have been no real calls since the bond hearing in which jail calls were discussed. Just a number of long calls to defense counsel's office, which the state has not reviewed. The state has been exceptionally restrictive not to review calls even though third parties were present. Okay, and there's one more aspect of the hearing we want to talk about, and that is the gunshot residue. Around the same time that we reported the presence of high-velocity impact spatter last spring, we also had heard from the same sources who told us that, that Ellick tested positive for gunshot residue. At the hearing, Dick and Jim talked a lot about the particles of GSR found on Alec Murdoch. Apparently, there were at least three particles on Alec's shirt, three on his shorts, and one particle on his hand. No particles were on his body or his shoes. Here is Jim's explanation for how the gunshot residue allegedly got on Alec. Keyword, allegedly. Analyst says that it's most consistent with Mr. Murdoch holding a gun, which, which he did have a gun, turned over to law enforcement, that that was transferred GSR, those minimal number of particles on him. But what we have not seen, what we have not gotten, is, is the, the data from the microscope or, or whatever, so that our independent experts can draw the same conclusion. 
and after Jim realized that he had put a gun in his murder suspect client's hand, he returned to the point for further explanation. And I, I, I do want to point out and clarify for so nothing gets misreported here is that is that the firearm that Mr. Um, Mr. Murdoch got that I was referring to was after he had called 911 while he's talking to the 911 operator saying he went back to his house to get a gun for his personal protection. That's that's the transfer. Needless to say, we have a lot of questions here. The first is about the Eddie Smith stunt. How are Dick and Jim allowed to strongly insinuate that he's the real killer without any sort of blowback for that? Is this something that murder suspects are allowed to do when they have the money to pay for attorneys to whom the press will readily listen? And speaking of this some other guy did it defense, let's look at the other possible quote-unquote suspects here. The first is Paul. According to Eddie's outlandish story, Paul shot Maggie, which is something Dick and Jim disgustingly chose to make public despite knowing that it is garbage. Not only was Ellick, the guy boo-hooing about putting flowers on Maggie's grave, willing to throw Maggie under the bus by allowing the public to believe her death was because of a tawdry affair with the groundskeeper, but he also allowed his attorneys to throw his dead son under the bus. There is no depth to how low this man will go, and yet his family and Maggie's family appear to be withholding judgment on him. Look at what is knowable now and tell us that this is a man to stand behind. It makes you wonder if Dick and Jim put that theory out there to see if it would float with the public, but there's never been any indication that Paul shot his mother. Then there's the cowboys. Boy, did that theory disappear quickly. Last fall, we kept hearing that Dick and Jim were pushing the Cowboys did it theory with Sled. But we've always said this. If some other person did this, especially someone with a street gang, then Alec had to have known about it because Maggie and Paul weren't supposed to be at Moselle that night. They were only there because of him. Lastly, and I hate to give this theory any oxygen, but we can't forget this happened either. Right after the murders, Randy Murdoch and others were going around spreading the outright lie that the murders were revenge for the boat crash. Sources have even told us they were, quote, collecting evidence to that effect. Let's take a quick moment and reflect on all this, okay? After Ellick was indicted for the financial crimes, and especially after the murder indictments, there were four groups of people. There were those who were completely unsurprised. Then there were those who were legitimately shocked that the Alec they knew would or could do these things. Then there were the ones who said they were shocked, but actually really did know he was a loathsome human. And then there were the people still going to bat for him, because in protecting him, they're protecting themselves. Never lose sight of that. Dick and Jim are clearly feeling desperate because there aren't a whole lot of other people they can blame this on. They keep saying that the state rushed to judgment on Ellick, while also saying the state didn't take enough time to properly gather the evidence. There was a funny line in their motion to compel on the polygraph data. Here's David. Alec's shock and grief exacerbated his narcotics addiction, and on September 4th, 2021, he asked his drug dealer, Curtis Eddie Smith, to shoot him in the head so his oldest son, Buster, would receive a life insurance payout. Smith agreed and shot Alex in the head, but the bullet grazed Alex's skull. 
Interesting, right? Because remember, when Alex's bullet wounds were described this way on WIS TV on October 19th, 2021. Well, I mean, Curtis Smith said that um, that Alex Murdoch was not shot. He wrestled with him. I mean, the reason I went on television last week was to respond to his statement to the Today Show that Alec wasn't shot, they wrestled for the gun, and of course we produced medical records showing he had two bullet holes in his head, fractured skull, brain bleed, I was in an ICU for two days. So obviously uh, Curtis Smith's rendition was not accurate. All right, thank you guys, thank you. And remember, they were described this way on Good Morning America on October 16th, 2021. He suffered a bullet wound to the head. And uh, so Eddie, Eddie Smith's uh, not telling the truth. Um, and uh, obviously he's got reasons not to tell the truth. And we furnished to you this morning medical records from the hospital, uh, which indicate he had two bullet wounds in the head. His skull was fractured. He had a brain bleed. Um, and um, uh, uh, he was put in ICU because his life was in danger as a result of being shot in the head. Smith's uh, bullet did not penetrate his skull. It did fracture his skull. It left what we believe is an entrance and exit wound on the side of his head. And now, in October 2022, Dick and Jim are calling it a graze. And yet the media is still doing their dirty work for them, just like they did last year. Here is David reading a few related headlines from that week. Alex Murdoch's defense lambasts prosecutors for not testing DNA under wife's fingernails. From Oxygen. From DNA to Curtis Smith, SC lawyers in Murdoch double murder trial fight over evidence in court. From the State Newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina. State promises additional tests after Alex Murdoch's attorneys point to unidentified DNA under dead wife's fingernails. From Law and Crime. Murdoch attorneys want more evidence from prosecutors ahead of murder trial. From the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. Murdoch uses public docs to sow doubt he killed his wife, son. From ABC. And finally, legal heir Alec Murdoch suspended in wife and son's murders. Names, quote, real killer from Nancy Grace. These were exactly the headlines Team Murdoch wanted floating around the blogosphere, as Dick calls it. Also, we want to note that Eddie's lawyer was at that hearing, and her response to the news that Eddie's DNA was being compared with DNA found at the murder scene was pretty epic. She told the Post and Courier, All it's going to do is help my guy. Then Dick can try to find somebody else to blame. That's what this whole hearing was about. If pinning this on Eddie is Dick and Jim's best foot forward, then that tells us the state's case is way stronger than they're letting on, and that Dick and Jim are in real trouble. And that's the problem here, because at the end of the day, Dick and Jim look like their only hope is to win this case through media manipulation while also wasting taxpayer money by demanding their dog and pony show hearings. Ultimately, Dick and Jim lost their request for broad powers of subpoena, but the judge agreed that they could talk to him about individual subpoenas on a case-by-case basis. And the judge also told the state to provide Dick and Jim with some deadlines to produce the rest of the discovery. Judge Newman's decision, though, to require the state to give Dick and Jim a more precise time of death for Maggie and Paul is interesting. 
We're not sure yet what that could mean for the state's case or Dick and Jim's defense. The state says Maggie and Paul died somewhere between 8.44 p.m. and 9.06 p.m. that night. Alec's team would say it was more like between 9.07 p.m. and 10.06 p.m. when Alec called 911. A 22-minute window seems about as precise as one could get given that the only witness to the murders is the murderer, but maybe the state has a way of drilling down on that even more. No matter what time the state gives them, we know Dick and Jim are going to have a fun answer for them to explain why Alec couldn't possibly have been there at that exact moment. So now we need to take a step back and look at all of the evidence that has already been presented. The high-velocity impact spatter, the gunshot residue, the location data, and the video evidence that destroys his alibi. And then... You think of everything that we've learned about Alec Murdoch in the last year and a half, and just how cold and calculated he can be. You think about how much credibility his defense team has lost in defending Alec. The completely false narrative they told the public about the shooting, how they completely incorrectly described Alec's finances before the court, and how they attempted to get public sympathy and failed at it by claiming that Alec had an opioid addiction that still has not been confirmed. And then you think of Alec's motive, how Alec's life was falling apart, and both Maggie and Paul were apparently a big problem for him. You think about his means, how Alec could easily access two guns from the property. And you think about Alec's opportunity, how he reportedly lured Maggie to Moselle that night. Let's face it, right now, Alec is the only suspect mentioned by anyone who has all three means, motive, and opportunity. If he didn't kill his wife and son, then he is the unluckiest man in the world. Do we really think that Dick and Jim are going to be able to convince a single jury member that their client is not guilty? But then we have to play devil's advocate for a minute because it's only one of 12 jurors we are talking about that Dick and Jim have to win over. And this is arguably going to be the most notable case in SLED's history. The question is, when all is said and done, did SLED initially treat the scene like they were working on the most notable case in the state of South Carolina? We have heard that the scene was chaotic and disorganized. We also have heard that Alec wasn't taken in for questioning that night, which seems like something that would have happened to most husbands who were carrying a gun with blood on his shirt right after his wife and son were murdered. And still, we have a hard time believing that Alec completely acted alone in that hour after the murders. We know that there were people on that scene who should not have been there. And we can only hope that SLED and the AG's office will impress us in January. We hope that we won't be sitting there in court wishing that they would have done this better. That said, Judge Newman has ordered that the trial will begin on January 30th, 2023. And who knows how many more Dick and Jim shenanigans there will be before then. But we will be there at every step of the way with Murdoch Murders podcast episodes, Cup of Justice bonus episodes, and more. 
So stay tuned and stay in the sunlight. The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney. Produced by my husband, David Moses. And Liz Farrell is our executive editor. Produced by Luna Shark Productions.